Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport podcast that slings a couple of spare tyres around its shoulders, straps a water bottle to the front of its handlebars, and rolls back through the most legendary tales in cycling history. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. We continue Recycle's Giro season riding with Luxembourg climber Charlie Gaul who braved blizzards and icy temperatures on Monte Bondone to take victory on stage 20 of the 1956 Giro d'Italia, and with it, an unlikely Maglia Rossa. Almost 17 minutes down going into the final mountain stage of the race, Gaul grasped an historic overall win in his frozen fingers, as his rivals either gave up or hitched a lift to the summit. Concerned about the well-being of the stricken man he had just found slumped in a ditch, the peasant phoned the police station at Trento. I have a cyclist here with me, and he doesn't speak Italian, he said. What should I do with him? The cyclist was Federico Bahamontes, the celebrated Spanish climber. And, like so many on that abysmal day, the Eagle of Toledo had had his wings clipped by the cataclysmic conditions that befell stage 20 of the 1956 Giro d'Italia. Was the wounded bird of prey really rescued from the gutter in this way? Almost certainly not. Bahamonte's own account of his plight on the way to Monte Bondone in the Garda Mountains of the Eastern Alps is very different. He claims he took refuge from the snow in an empty farmhouse with compatriot Jesus Galdiano, where they both, and this is so specific it surely must be true, put on some spare pyjamas to warm up. I had frostbite in my hands and feet, Bahamontes said, according to an account of that legendary day by Les Woodland, the doyen of British cycling authors. I couldn't use them properly for a month. I'd never known such bad weather. It was really frightening. We just stopped wherever we could. Two here, six there, wherever you were, you abandoned. Of the 83 riders who started the stage that day, only 42 finished, and most of those had a little additional motorised assistance. 
One rider who battled through hailstorms, torrential rain and blizzards over five climbs for nine hours, his body twisted and hunched over the handlebars, was hardman Fiorenzo Magni, the previous year's winner. The Italian veteran had seen the defence of his Giro title dealt a painful blow ten days earlier after breaking a collarbone and then his shoulder in separate falls. Had Bahamontes only stayed with Magny to the finish, he might well have emerged from a day of hell in the leader's jersey. Easier said than done. For it was a day, according to the former Tour de France organiser Jacques Godet, that surpassed anything seen before in terms of pain, suffering and difficulty. Newspapers would refer to the finishers as survivors, while Bahamontes himself would later tell his biographer Alistair Fotheringham that nobody got to the top on a bike, a nod to the claims that a large number of the finishers that day reached the summit of Monte Bondone by car. Finally, we were picked up by a lorry, Bahamontes said, recalling his post-pajama haze. We all quit. Anybody who says the opposite is lying. Those who threw in the towel that day were overnight leader Pasquale Fonara, as well as the virtual Magliarossa Nino Di Filippis. The latter had simply ridden to a standstill, keeling over on his bike, his fingers glued to the icy handlebars. But with the Alpine troops deployed to help with the fallout, and as managers and sporting directors turned the heating up in their cars, hoping for the best as they peered through windshields that the frozen wipers couldn't clear, one rider was still unaccounted for. As René de la Tour would later write in Sporting Cyclist magazine, a search was going on for a missing man. The searcher-in-chief was former world champion Liarco Guerra, now manager of the FIMA team. The man he was looking for was Charlie Gaul, who had not been seen for the last 20 minutes. Guerra was driving his car up the mountain pass, peering through the clogged-up windscreen when, by sheer chance, he saw a bike leaning against the wall of a shabby mountain trattoria. That's Charlie's bike, he exclaimed to his mechanic. Gaul was in 24th place overall going into the stage, more than 16 minutes down on the race leader. But the Luxembourg climber excelled on tough terrain and in cold conditions. Despite a few setbacks along the way, Gaul had bided his time until the final climb, where he had ridden clear through the blizzard as the carnage played out in his wake. Riding in short sleeves, Gaul had certainly needed that coffee break to warm up, change his freezing kit and compose himself. Years later, he also admitted that a banana offered to him by a spectator had been his salvation. But after ploughing through the most extreme of conditions for more than nine hours, Gaul came home to win alone and take the Magliarossa from further back than anyone else before or since. His face was no longer that of a man, the journalist Gianni Seri said of Gaul's arrival on Monte Bondone in the next day's Gazzetto dello Sport. 65 years on, here is the story of how one angelic climber beat the demonic weather to become only the third non-Italian rider to win the Giro d'Italia. Who was Charlie Gaul? Often billed as the best pure climber the sport has ever produced, Gaul's blue eyes, youthful, almost cherubic features, together with his smooth pedalling, graceful climbing and penchant for long-range attacks earned him the nickname 
the Angel of the Mountains. Gaul was only 20 when he turned pro for the French Tarot team in May 1953, making an instant impression by placing second overall and winning the King of the Mountains title in the Dauphiné Libre. The youngster made such an impression that the veteran Belgian rider Pino Cerami claimed he climbed even better than Coppi. High praise given that old Fausto had already risen to five Giro d'Italia titles and two tours at that point. What made Gaul stand out from his fellow climbers, as the Italian cycling specialist Herbie Sykes explains, was the fact that he was a spinner. In relative terms, Coppi turned big gears, and, of course, the methodology had always been big gears. Gaul was one who would tic-tac his way up this stuff, and that hadn't really been done before. They'd only introduced derailleurs 20 years before, and cyclists were mules. No one had really seen a cyclist like Gaul before. It was the journalist Pierre Abou writing in Le Keep who first referred to Gaul as the Angel of the Mountains after he'd seen the 21-year-old notch his first major victory in the now-defunct Circuit des Six Provence in 1954. When Charlie Gaul met with the terrible ascent of the Chaboure, Abou wrote, one forgot that he had been looking like a man who fought and suffered. An irresistible lightness suddenly took hold of this young boy with doll's eyes and he gave the impression of an angel for whom nothing is difficult. Light, harmonious, he rode away from the field. These good looks allegedly saw Gaul receive up to 60 letters a day from female fans. On showing his impressionable teammate Marcel Ernzer some of these saucy missives, his loyal Gregorio blushed and vowed never to get married if this was what women wanted. On the bike, Gaul was in his element when the temperature dropped and the heavens opened. While others feared a downpour, he seemed to relish miserable conditions, perhaps unsurprising given his former career handling frozen carcasses in an abattoir. Raphael Geminiani, the French rider who was famously thwarted by Gaul in a rainstorm in the Chartreuse Mountains during the 1958 Tour de France, described his rival as a murderous climber, always sustaining the same rhythm, a little machine with a lower gear than the rest of us, turning his legs at a speed that would break your heart, going tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Meanwhile, the celebrated French cycling writer Antoine Blondin described him as Mozart on two wheels. When we raced, we were irreconcilable, Bahamontes told Fotheringham for his book The Eagle of Toledo after Gaul died in 2005. Going uphill, even he admitted I was better, but when it rained, he was impossible to beat. As an amateur, Gaul rode only hilly races. For all his strengths on the climbs, it took him a bit of time to adapt to professional racing. He failed to finish his first two tours, and it was not until the mid-1950s when he finally managed to master riding in a pack, positioning himself well, and getting through the long, flat days that pepper stage races. He was rewarded with a podium finish in the 1955 tour, winning stages in both the Alps and the Pyrenees. In many respects, his Angel of the Mountain moniker seemed out of kilter for a man so gloomy, withdrawn, and apparently tormented, a man of few words who didn't have many friends in the peloton. Fotheringham, in his Bahamontes biography, 
quotes a writer who said that Gaul gives the impression that an evil deity had forced him into a cursed profession. While the nickname stuck until his death half a century later, his peers described Gaul as a moody figure prone to angry outbursts and whose behaviour bordered on the demonic. Bahamontes, who eventually became a very close friend to Gaul following their bitter rivalry, described him as having a very strong character, terrible even. Charlie Gaul might have climbed mountains like an angel, but he was far from angelic, the author Chris Sidwell says in his Cycling Legends series. He was a butcher before he was a pro cyclist, and once threatened a rival by telling him he'd get his knives and make sausages out of him. Gaul had won Stage 7 to Campobosso, a day after the careworn Campionissimo Coppi had withdrawn with a back injury, and then the 2.5km Stage 13 uphill time trial to Madonna di San Luca. But three punctures during the previous stage over the Stelvio had seen him drop further away from the top 10, the Luxembourg climber languishing in 24th place. This all contributed to his being almost 17 minutes behind race leader Pasquale Fornara of Italy, with only three stages remaining of what had been, in fairness, a rather humdrum edition of the Giro. It was the fag end of what was a Giro d'Italia, Sykes says. Nothing had happened. It was the first Giro post-Copy in Magny. Well, Magny was there and Copy had started, but he wasn't really the rider he once was, and Gino Bartoli was working as a journalist. And no Italian who wasn't one of those three had won the Giro for 17 years. The organisers had introduced lots of compact stages and filled the 39th edition with several short time trials in what was a failed attempt to reinvent the Giro. The result was that journeyman Alessandro Fantini, a sprinter by trade, led for pretty much the first half of the race before Fornara, a solid but hardly stellar Grand Tour rider, took over in the hot seat. Fornara held a slender nine-second lead going into stage 20, the final mountain test of a race that Sykes describes as having been crap and boring. That morning, La Gazzetta had even admitted that the decisive part of this race is over. But freak storms had blown in overnight, and a cold snap hit the Garda Mountains, a sudden drop in temperature that to this day confounds meteorologists. If Gaul revelled in bad weather, even he would have felt his deficit on GC was too large to pull off an upset. Besides, his entire FIMA team, for which he cared very little, often refusing to share his winnings, had threatened to withdraw that very morning. In his head, the Maglia Rossa might have been beyond his grasp, but the angel was going to have a little fun. Besides, a spectacle in the snow was just what the Giro needed before the curtain came down. As Sykes explains, after three weeks of absolute tedium, you had Fantini in the Maglia Rossa for ten days, and he was a sprinter. Something needed to happen, and something pretty apocalyptic did. Something really big. Featuring five climbs, the 242km stage rolled out of Murano in the Dolomites in cold, damp weather. Gaul and Bahamontes signalled their intent by attacking on the first climb, the Costa Lunga. The duo were reeled in on the descent, 
before Gould attacked again on the Passorola. By the time the race leader, Fornara, crested the summit of the second climb, he was four minutes behind Gaul, who had really taken flight. Fornara was really suffering in the awful conditions, but a lifeline came when Gaul was laid low with two punctures, costing him six minutes. Gaul was well behind the leaders as the race hit the third climb, the Brocon, at which point the rain started to come down even harder. Spinning away in his trademark small gears, Gaul quickly reeled in the pink jersey. Making light of a fierce headwind, he now focused on closing the gap to the Italians Magni and Di Filippis. It was no surprise when Charlie Gaul broke away, says Les Woodland in Cycling's 50 Triumphs and Tragedies. He was one of the most talented climbers of his era, and a man who did best when the weather was against him. And that day, it was against everyone. Snow began falling, and Gaul, sensing his day, was alone with 88 kilometres still to go. And the snow carried on falling. Riders scattered across the countryside, more concerned with their immediate future than they were with the race and their rivals. It was around 50 kilometres from the finish that Bahamontes either took refuge in that ditch or resorted to putting on a stranger's pyjamas. Either way, he later told Fotheringham, it was impossible to race. There had been landslides and stones as big as a cupboard were all over the road. Charlie Gaul ended up partially deformed by the cold and I had frostbite in my hands and feet. I couldn't use them properly for a month. Gaul soon passed Magny, bravely riding on despite his litany of injuries, and then caught De Filippis, the virtual Magliarossa. At this point, with two climbs remaining, Gaul was only two minutes behind the leader on the road, Bruno Monti, but still a chasm away from leading the race. The horrendous weather got the better of De Filippis on the penultimate climb. Although he was riding into pink, he was struggling with both the elements and gradients. Caught by the Fornara group, he soon collapsed and had to be bundled into his Bianchi team car. He allegedly told his manager that he wouldn't continue even for 10 million lira. It wasn't long before scores of riders followed suit, including Fornara. Magni recalled years later, It snowed the whole day and it was very cold. I hadn't noticed how much. Along the way, I saw many bikes parked next to bars and I asked what was going on. They told me that most of the peloton froze and had to quit. Then, before reaching Trento, I saw the race leader for Nara quitting too. What? Am I seeing things? I wondered. If I were the pink jersey, I would have continued even if I had to walk. But I would never abandon. You'd have expected nothing less from a man who, only days earlier, had been reduced to biting on an inner tube tied to his handlebars to combat the pain of two broken bones. That he had ridden on at all was a minor miracle, and you can hear the story of the race from Manny's perspective in Season 1, Episode 3 of Recycle, which tells the tale of the climb to Basilica San Luca. As the remaining riders passed through Trento, such was the attrition rate that Gaul, the frail 23-year-old forced to descend the penultimate climb using his feet as much as his frozen brakes, not only looked like he could win the stage, but perhaps move into the pink jersey as well. 
provided, that is, he could get up the final ascent to the exposed summit of Monte Bondone. Rising from 192 metres to 1,300 over 16 kilometres and taking in 30 hairpins, the so-called Mountain of Trento was being used for the first time in the Giro that year, and it achieved instant legendary status. Never mind the riders, only one of the race's 12 motorbikes made it to the summit as rain turned to snow and later to a full blizzard, buffeted by gusting winds. In short sleeves and no hat, Gaul ploughed a lonely furrow through the slush, perhaps demonstrating just why his French rival Gimignani once described him as having the skin of a hippo. Earlier in the stage, Gaul had been reduced to descending at a snail's pace because his frozen fingers could not pull on the brakes. But he was so far ahead going onto the final climb that people were unsure if he was still in the race or if he had joined the swathes of riders who had thrown in the towel. Once his manager, Liarco Guerra, had managed to locate Gaul in that mountain trattoria halfway up the climb, the lone leader's advantage was large, but the win was not yet in the bag. René de la Tour's account in Sporting Cyclist picks up the story. They rushed into the bar, and there, sitting on a chair sipping hot coffee, was Charlie Gaul, exhausted, so dead to the world that he could hardly speak. Guerra knows bike riders. He talked gently to Gaul. Take your time, Charlie, he said. We're going to take care of you. While a masseur was ripping off Gaul's wet jersey, Guerra had some water warmed and poured it over the rider's body. Then, rubbed down from head to toes, Gaul's body gradually came back to life. He lost that glassy look, and in a few minutes, he was a new man again. Not for long. There were moments in the closing kilometres of the climb where Gaul told his manager that he was dying from cold, to which Guerra simply replied, Go ahead and die, but do it with the pink jersey on. Of course, Gaul was not the only one suffering. In his history of Italian cycling, Padalare Padalare, John Foote reels off an endless list of riders resorting to any benefit that could keep them going. As winds reach speeds of 70 kilometres per hour, riders plunge their hands into bowls of warm water supplied by spectators, willfully accepting glasses of brandy or grappa. Coppi, who was following the race in the Carpano team car after pulling out in the opening week, was advising his teammates to stop, have a hot bath, and then carry on. Bruno Monti and Aldo Moser, who was third on GC going into the stage, carried on while pleading for hot water to be thrown at them. The Italian Nello Fabri apparently collapsed into a soldier's arms, crying, I don't want to die. The Spanish newspaper El Mundo Deportivo would describe the stage as a hecatomb, the classical term denoting a large-scale public sacrifice usually of a hundred oxen. It is indeed hard to look beyond the riders that day as more than livestock, and how ironic that the man leading them like lambs to the slaughter was the man who once worked as a butcher. A banana given to him by a spectator in the closing kilometres was just about enough to get Gaul over the line, where he managed a half-hearted fist pump 
before promptly fainting on trying to dismount. Alpine soldiers picked him up and wrapped him in blankets, carrying him to a hut where they plied him with hot drinks. His face wrinkled with cold and his hands and feet blue. Gaul couldn't open his mouth. He was trembling so violently that, even an hour later, his frozen jersey had to be cut from his chest. After nine hours, seven minutes and 28 seconds in the saddle, Gaul had won his third stage of the 1956 Giro d'Italia, and with it, the Maglia Rossa. He finished nearly eight minutes ahead of runner-up Alessandro Fantini, who John Foote reports as having crossed the line wearing a leather jacket. It was obvious that Fantini had not climbed the last mountain under his own steam, Foote adds. He wasn't the only one. The reports differ, with some claiming only 29 riders completed the stage and most settling on a figure between 42 and 49, from the morning's 89 starters. Most people can agree, however, that hardly any of the finishers got to the summit by bike alone. For many, a truck was the preferred means of transport to the top, although some riders got in team cars before exiting to make a show of riding the last stretch to the finish in a bid to avoid elimination. In any case, the history books say that Manyi battled to third place, more than 12 minutes in arrears. The top 23 in the general classification, all those riders who led Gaul going into the decisive stage, either retired or came home well after Manyi. Indeed, the last place rider took more than 11 hours to reach the finish, while the entirety of the rest of Gaul's Feimer team pulled out. The stage winner, meanwhile, was bundled into a hot bath, where he stayed for half an hour while thawing out, apparently suffering some kind of amnesia. When he came round, he still couldn't remember what had happened. After being told once again that he was in pink, Gaul started swearing and rued the day he had first got on a bike. Never before in the Giro's history had one man come from so far back to take the Magliarossa in a single day, a record still unbroken 65 years on. The race was still not over, with two more flat stages to compete, and Manyi, the crocked defending champion now up to second in the standings, albeit three minutes and 27 seconds down, hadn't given up just yet. I actually thought about attacking Gaul in the following stages and trying to win my fourth Giro, Manyi would later admit. I tried attacking him a couple of times during the final two stages, but he was just too strong. Gaul rode into Milan to become the third non-Italian to win the Giro after Switzerland's Hugo Coblet in 1950 and his understudy and countryman Carlo Clerici in 1954. The victory was secured by an astounding performance that Philippe Brunel of L'Equipe describes as having never been equaled in the long history of post-war road racing. Such hyperbole was also how the race was greeted by the press corps at the time. Giuseppe Ambrosini, typing with frozen fingers, wrote of a real drama that day. Emilio Di Martino predicted, correctly, that this day will become part of history. Guido Giardini claimed that this stage of the Giro will soon become legendary and compared it to the 1910 Milan San Remo won by Eugène Christophe in similarly barbaric conditions. And for Jacques Godet of L'Equipe, 
we found ourselves in the mountain stages of a prehistoric age. In his history of Italian cycling, John Foote says that the apocalyptic Bondone stage had been Gaul's triumph and had revolutionised the whole race. But was there a lingering suspicion that even the winner that day had benefited, perhaps understandably, from foul play in the horrendous conditions? Federico Bahamontes certainly thinks so. Had he finished the stage, the Eagle of Toledo would have probably led the Giro and then gone on to become the first Spanish winner of the race, something which, in the event, didn't happen until Miguel Indurain triumphed in 1992. Speaking to Cycling News in 2014, the Spaniard explained how bad weather could become the biggest obstacle in the Giro for those in the hunt for pink. Looking back at that fateful stage to Monte Bondone, he said, I could have been in the pink jersey that day, but had to quit because of the weather. That day nobody made it to the summit of the Bondone on a bike, whatever anybody says. Everybody got in a car, including Charlie Gaul. While it has never been proven that Gaul did not ride all the way himself, and in any case, it was nine years too late for him to put the record straight after Bahamonte's claim, it is certainly true that there was an element of panic from the Giro organisers. Such a spectacle was what they wanted, and indeed, what the race needed, but it would not have looked too good if the only rider who made it to Milan was the man in pink. As Foote explains, in their desperation, the race organisers actually encouraged this assistance for Fantini and others because the whole Giro was at risk. Too many cyclists were dropping out. And, if you believe Bahamontes, even those who got to the finish in trucks or cars were allowed to start the next stage if they wanted. The next day, he continues, the organisers came round the team hotels asking who would want to start the stage even if we had abandoned because they didn't want a tiny peloton for the last day into Milan. A man of honour, Bahamontes naturally declined. His claim that Gaul was given a lift to the top is dismissed as sour grapes from Herbie Sykes, who, over the course of his career, has spoken to numerous riders about that stage that day. Notably, Agostino Coletto, who finished fourth on the stage and went on to take the final spot on the final podium in Milan. All the riders I spoke to said they weren't one of those who hitched a lift, and those who did said they weren't the only ones, says Sykes. I was quite good friends with Tino Coletto, and he said that everybody, or at least almost everybody, went up Bondone in team cars because the organisers needed to get the race over the line in some way. So it's quite possible that Manny, Coletto and goodness knows who didn't actually ride all of the stage. But we'll never know. There was even some conjecture about whether or not Gaul rode all of the stage. It seems fanciful to me that the guy who won the stage didn't actually ride it, because of course there would have been journalists watching. I find the notion that Guerra shoved him in the back of a car at some point highly improbable, if I'm honest. Perhaps even more controversial by today's standards, although not so much at the time, was Gaul's well-documented drug use. If it can't be proven that Gaul had motorised assistance, 
then it's beyond reasonable doubt that he didn't get up the bondone on a banana alone. He was probably charged with a large dose of amphetamines. Indeed, amphetamine psychosis has been mooted as a possible explanation as to why Gaul, who so often rode with expressionless eyes and with flecks of foam on his lips, suffered a breakdown in retirement and became a notorious recluse. Amphetamines are said to not be so effective in the heat, and Gaul's best days came in cold, bitter weather. Make of that what you will. L'Equipe once published an alleged conversation Marcel Ernzer had with his team leader, compatriot and roommate, in which a morose Gaul, speaking in the third person, said, Charlie is going to die. Asked why he felt this way, he replied, because Charlie takes too many pills. But everyone takes them, Ernza said. Amphetamines were not officially against the rules back then. Yes, but Charlie takes a lot more than the others, came the reply. So, what happened next? History repeated itself when Gaul won the 1958 Tour de France after similar exploits in ghastly weather. It was the last day in the Alps. Gaul had already won two stages, including a time trial at Mont Ventoux, but he was sitting in sixth place, 16 minutes down on his French rival Gimignani, ahead of the 21st of 24 stages. With the rain falling and cold temperatures engulfing the peloton, Gaul was bullish ahead of the stage. He approached his even bigger French rival, Louis Bobé, and taunted him telling the triple tour winner exactly where he'd attack and put a nail in the coffin of his teammate Giminiani's yellow jersey chances. Gaul duly delivered, soloing to glory in Aix-les-Bains, almost eight minutes clear, with Giminiani losing yellow after trundling home 14 minutes in arrears and with an empty Bobe a further five minutes back. This made up for the day Bobe had humiliated Gaul in the defence of his Giro title one year earlier, when the Frenchman attacked while Gaul was answering a call to nature, an episode that earned him the nickname Monsieur Pipi. It is said that Gaul was so riled by Bobet's duplicity that he reminded him that his previous job in an abattoir ensured he knew how to handle a knife. And, more to the point, that he wasn't afraid to use one. Victory in the penultimate day's time trial, his fourth success of the 1958 tour, was enough for Gaul to move into the Maillot Jaune and win the race. A year later, he won his second Giro ahead of Jacques Anquetil. After his faithful lieutenant Marcel Ernzer, who always rode an identical bike in case of emergency, retired in 1962, Gaul struggled to find the motivation or form to reach the same heights. He quit, then came out of retirement again, before calling it a day for good in 1965 to open a bar near the station in Luxembourg City. It closed down after just six months. Gaul then had a slump and took himself off to the Ardennes to live in a hut in a forest where he grew vegetables and a beard, drank heavily and ballooned at the belt following the disintegration of his second marriage. He refused to speak to any journalists and was in denial about his entire career, spending his days listening to the birds and watching the deer that roamed his grounds. He had no electricity, 
and he unplugged his phone. A third marriage in 1983 saw Gaul become more stable. He returned to the suburbs and had a daughter. He even bought a little portable TV and started watching the Tour de France again. He soon took a job as an archivist in the Luxembourg Sports Ministry and started to speak to journalists again, opening up about his life as a hermit in exile. It's difficult to go back to a normal life after being a cyclist, he explained. Somewhere along the line, Gaul also struck up a friendship with another fragile climber, the late Marco Pantani. Back in public life, Gaul was a guest of honour in 1989 when the tour started in Luxembourg City, and in 2000 he was invited to sit on the podium at the end of stages. To mark the 50th anniversary of his victory, the Giro returned to Monte Bondone for a fifth time in 2006, following the subsequent victories by Italy's Gastone Nincini in 1957, Belgium's Johan de Moink in 1978, and Spain's Miguel Indurain in 1992. Charlie Gaulle should have been present when Ivan Basso took the spoils on stage 16 that year, but he had died six months earlier, aged 72. There are two permanent monuments on the mountain dedicated to him and his epic victory. Stage 17 of the 2020 Giro included the mighty Bondone ahead of the finish at Madonna di Campiglio, where the Australian Ben O'Connor took the spoils for NTT Pro Cycling. An annual Grand Fondo called La Legendaria Charlie Gaul starts in Trento and finishes on the climb that Gaul described as having marked my life. It was a source of joy and regret. Gaul's victory in the sleet and snow of stage 20 of the 1956 Giro d'Italia cemented his status not only as a climber par excellence, but a GC rider capable of winning Grand Tours. He had won on centre stage before, but this was the first time that he had a leader's jersey to show for his considerable effort. As Foot emphasises in Pedalare Pedalare, the Luxembourg cyclist's entire career, in retrospect, became centred on that one extraordinary day. For Sykes, Gaul's victory in the 1959 Giro was curiously a better all-round exploit performance-wise but didn't have the same reverberations as his win on Monte Bondone, primarily because of the weather. It's definitely one of those seminal days in cycling, and it resonates down the ages, he says. There were a lot of circumcollateral things around that day that made it what it's become, the stuff of Giro legend. But because of the pedestrian nature of that year's race, when something did finally happen, La Gazetta couldn't help but over-egg the tiramisu. Cycling has that need for hyperbole, Sykes explains. The previous year, there had been this big showdown on San Pellegrino with Coppi and Magny. That was the end of that time. This was the beginning of a new time, and they needed to generate some momentum around cycling. I think Monte Bondone was a useful construct in that respect. Like Andy Hampston's win on the Gavia in 1988, or Bernard Eno's victory in what became known as Neige Baston Neige in 1980, Monte Bondone had an important role to stoke interest and fire up a narrative. 
It's one of those big days that serves a purpose beyond the cycling itself, says Sykes, who reckons the 14th stage of the 1962 Giro was far worse in terms of weather. That day, 57 riders abandoned in the Dolomites as eventual winner Franco Balmamion surged up the standings after the overnight leader, Belgium's Armand Desme, shipped 18 minutes in the cold. But there's always stuff around the race that determines where it sits in history, Sykes adds. For Charlie Gaulle, his win on Monte Bondone confirmed his status as the sensational climber that he was. Whether he would have won that Giro had Pasquale Fornara not climbed off his bike, or Federico Bahamontes not put on a pair of pyjamas and jumped into a truck, we will never know. But they did. While Gaulle, regardless of which gear, motorised or else got him to the top, crossed the line ahead of the rest to secure a win that would both fuel him and haunt him for the rest of his days. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze, and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete tearing down Jonathan Vorter's argument for the European Super League. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode of Recycle when we roll back to Cadell Evans' attritional triumph through the mud to Montalcino on stage seven of the 2010 Giro d'Italia. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.